Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that adapting to life in northern climates may have actually been a real headache. Researchers just discovered that there's a certain genetic variation in a cold-sensitive protein that's way more common in people from northern Europe than it is in Asians or Africans. And that variation is linked to migraine headaches, which you're way more likely to get if you have northern European ancestors. For instance, in Finland, 88% of people have that genetic variation, and they have a much higher risk for migraines. But if you're from Nigeria, only 5% of people have that. We don't think it's a coincidence. The new study authors suggest that thousands of years ago, this mutation made people who lived in cold, dark places better able to handle them. And it's called TRPM8 for people who like to go Google that sort of thing. And what that means is, well, you might be more likely to get a migraine if you're from that genetic history. What you can do about migraines, well, that's probably a mitochondrial thing or a blood flow thing, and I'm not gonna tell you how to solve that right now, but I can tell you that eating less stuff that causes inflammation is probably a good start. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. If you like today's show or you like that cool fact of the day, if you go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, it'll take you to the link where you can subscribe to the show and leave a review, which is something that I track every single day. So thanks if you decide to do that. I'm really excited about today's interview. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Ted Achacoso. And I'm really excited to talk with him because he's a geek from artificial intelligence land who turned into an anti-aging guy. We're talking about being a leader in fields like medical informatics, artificial intelligence, quantitative trading, and most interestingly maybe is the mathematics of consciousness. He wrote a book more than 20 years ago that had the first ever neural circuitry database, which is called a connectome. And he did this for a very small organism called C. elegans and was the chief science officer for a company that did work in parallel and cluster and cloud computing, uh, which is kind of cool because that's also my background. But he wrote this paper that said, hey, here's the flow of information across, uh, across small organisms. And it turns out that that was a seminal paper, even though it wasn't recognized for more than 10 years. Our neurons, our mitochondria, and pretty much most biological systems have this connectome but it was invisible to science, and it took someone who had a medical background and a, we'll just call it a, a big computing background uh, to put that stuff together. On top of that now, he's created a field called health optimization medicine, and this is something that ties together clinical metabolomics, epigenetics, bioenergetics, your gut immune systems, 
chronobiology, evolutionary medicine, basically stuff you might have heard about if you listen to this show, and put it all together into a coherent system that you can use to be better instead of just not sick. So you can see why I wanted to interview him. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. Now, you are, I think the technical term is a crazy smart guy because you've been quoted as saying that on bad days, your IQ is 186 and on good days, it's 210. True? Yes, true. It's more measured like this. At the time that it was measured, there were only 4 billion people on Earth. And it was one in one billion, right? So now that there are eight billion, I presume that there's eight in <laughs> there's there's eight now. If it's a one in a billion, so so you're you're, you're less cool than you used to be. I uh, so I'm less cool than I used to be. I've been <laughs> diluted. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I wanted to start there, not so that uh, you know you, you could say I'm I'm super smart. Although anyone who hears this interview is going to figure that out pretty quickly. What's up with that huge variance between 186 and 210? Well, it depends on what psychedelic I'm taking. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, the brain, the brain actually goes in cycles, much like uh, any other system of the body. There will be um, certain uh, bodily states or um, states of bodily function, your hormonal state, your nutritional state, etc., that can actually you know, um, decrease performance, increase performance, either cognitively, physically, uh, emotionally, you know. Um, and I, I was actually surprised. It, it was only uh, a few years ago where they discovered that, that uh, the testosterone levels in men, for example, would have a biphasic uh, curve. You know, it's, uh, it, it rises twice in 28 days. So it gives men, uh, you know, uh, two times the opportunity for reproduction. Those kinds of cycles right now are just uh, getting um, revealed to us. And if you are sensitive to those kinds of things, if like, for example, looking at me and, and my cognitive performance, you see that there, you feel in an off day, uh, all the other all the other variables being the same, you the performance suffers when you lack sleep, when you have you didn't get enough sunlight exposure, you don't have enough activity and so on. So I said, well, how do you measure these things? And I said, well, you know, um, right now we could actually measure them through metabolomics because all of these activities throw off metabolites and we could see their levels. You know, you're not necessarily sick, but you could uh, automatically monitor performance, right, uh, of, of all of your cells in your body. So that's what got me into thinking about, well, you know, Dave has been podcasting for the longest time about mitochondria, microbiota exposomics, you know, uh, epigenetics, chronobiology, evolutionary medicine, how does it all tie together and in, into a discrete clinical practice? And when I sit down in front of a patient or a client, you know, what should I do? And it turns out that there is actually um, available now a science called metabolomics. We could actually measure the levels of the metabolites that are being thrown off by your body either endogenously or coming from yourself, coming from the toxins that you eat or you inhale, coming from food and so on. In fact, you know, there's a human metabolome database uh, out there um, maintained by Canada. And I said, well, you know, illness medicine detects and uh, basically uh, diagnoses and treats disease. I said, well, let me borrow a page from their book of marketing. So I said, well, health optimization medicine detects and corrects imbalances at the level of the metabolome. 
and I chose the level of metabolome for several reasons. Um, you know, the metabolome, for example, the genes or the genome can tell you what might happen. Uh, the transcriptome can tell you what appears to be happening. The proteome can tell you, you know, what makes it happen, but it's the metabolome that tells you what is happening now or what has just happened. And that's what we need in clinical practice. So how do you tie this all together? You know, all of these new things that are not taught in medical school and incorporate them in clinical practice. And, I, and then I realized this is really shifting level of medicine away from the organ level to the specialized function level, like the organ level, like the heart or the brain, you know, and, uh, from, uh, or, or the pancreas and uh, the specialized function of pancreas, the, the insulin production, et cetera. Those are all within the realm of illness medicine. But when you get to health optimization medicine, who takes care of the foundational cell or the fundamental cell that has a nucleus, the mitochondria and the plasmic reticula, you know, uh, all of these things that we actually never paid attention to. And the reason we didn't pay attention to this is we didn't have the science and technology then. But now that we do, why don't we pay attention to the foundational cell that underlies all of the cells in the body? So that's what uh, actually is a connection between how you shift perspective away from illness, how you shift perspective away from poor performance, as we started this uh, tangent with, into something that encompasses, you know, just dealing with the health of something. If it's foundational health, then everything else that arises from it will, will get affected, right? If you, if you uh, yeah. uh, affect the foundational health of the pancreatic cell, for example, the basic cell, then the pancreatic function improves, then, you know, the overall blood sugar metabolism of the person improves. Same way with cognitive function, uh, same way with everything else. I, I wrote since the very early days of the blog, I've used techniques to raise my IQ by at least 20 points. Mm -hmm. And it pissed so many people off when I said that. Cause I, well, you can't do that. It's like, well, sorry, I, I just did. <laughs> like like the, the can't statement is, is fundamentally not true. And then uh, Dr. Amen from yes. Amen Clinics uh, came on my, my documentary for Toxic Mold. And he's like, oh yeah, people lose 15 IQ points all the time by being in a water-damaged building. I'm like, funny, I removed myself from one of those. Maybe I got 15 points there. And I used a bunch of brain training. And and bottom line is, there is a daily variance in your IQ based on your metabolism, your metabolome, uh, as we're talking about here. And so I was fascinated just to hear that you've paid enough attention to that to say, wow, I have like a 20-point swing just about uh, in your case, I think a little bit more than 20 points, just based on how am I doing biologically right now? Uh, yes. and, and so just to be able to talk about that's important for people listening. Yeah, no, I think my variance is closer to schizophrenia. I'm kidding. I <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just positive schizophrenia. That, that's totally good. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I noticed, Dave, in terms of, of the variance is that on, on days of low cognitive performance, um, for me is my incapacity to integrate a lot of things together. And that yeah. I begin to compartmentalize a lot of things, which is what happens in schizophrenia, right? You, you compartmentalize a lot of things. And when you are on high functioning stage, you're able to integrate a lot of things. In fact, you're able to step away from what your ego wants to do. You observe the ego and what the ego wants to do. And you actually observe all the other variables uh, in, in the situation that you're assessing at hand, whether it be a client or a patient 
or a situation, a business situation you have to deal with, a computer problem, a mathematical problem, then one of the one of the things that was so interesting when us being taught, you know, um, heavy uh, geometry and biomathematics uh, by my mentor, who was the pioneer in in medical informatics globally, Bill Yamamoto. He said, I was working on an equation and, you know, I couldn't remove this constant in there because it was a constant. Right. And and then he looks at me and he said, you know, Ted, you know, if murder is part of the solution, don't take it off the table. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's kind of dark. And it was dark, but I saw his point and he was referring to a mathematical equation. So when I took away the constant, I found my solution. See, that kind of thinking comes to you, you know, when you're not compartmentalized, when you're, when you're functioning at hundred percent, you see that there's nothing in there that you have held sacred that's actually indispensable. And suddenly your mind is able to actually find other solutions for it that not only makes sense, but it becomes useful in the long run. Right. And that, that's kind of what, what computer hackers do. Uh, and, and that's you know, my, my main background was you know, how do you build stuff you're not supposed to build? How do you control things you're not supposed to control, uh, say, like your own biology? But okay. uh, I, I do find that when I teach my kids things, uh, saying you can't do something or something's impossible, uh, we just don't say that in the house. And they used to argue about it. And, and you know, my son would say, oh, well, it's, you can't travel to the middle of the, the sun w- without a spacesuit or whatever. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes. And I said, great. Now change the laws of physics. Can you do it? And he's like, well, maybe. I'm like, okay, so, so here's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, There's always assumptions in there, and they're usually false, but useful. Yeah. Because, you know, it, well, it's hard to change laws of physics. We don't know how to do that. But it doesn't mean you can't. It just means no one's done it yet. You no, know, it's, it's really interesting, Dave, because uh, uh, four years ago, uh, I read this book called uh, Inner Journeys to Outer Space. And it was about psychedelics. And... Um, And then he said, uh, essentially, it it got me to thinking because of the, you know, the Kalabayao lattice, 11 dimensions in hyperspace and so on and so forth, you know, but the rest are curled tightly into a ball. And uh, uh, it said we should not probably be building spaceships, you know, because we can never get to those dimensions. Probably we have to use molecules with a proper vibratory state in order to enter those dimensions. That really... Uh, got me into uh, a lot of thinking about how to access other dimensions. Well, I'm I'm like you. I'm I'm weird like that. You know, how do we access these other dimensions that physics is positing to be true and so on? You know, surely it's not by another rock. You know, I interviewed Nasib Tal- uh, Nasib Talim uh, recently. Nasib Taleb, yeah. Oh, so, sorry. I knew I had a, a thing wrong. By the way, speaking of cognitive function, there's three words I haven't been able to think of so far in this interview, which tells me today is not a high functioning day for me, and I haven't figured out why yet. <laughs> Uh, I actually slept more than normal. I'll infuse you with energy, so you'll have a by a quantum teleportation. Uh, there we go. It's yeah. It's, I, there we go. I I can remember everything. My IQ just went up forty <laughs> points. Right, no, and now uh, I was going to ask you something. Most people probably aren't watching uh, the video. In fact, uh, it'll be just audio. But behind you, you have I see on your mantelpiece. You have four unicorns and one piece of sacred geometry art that's either a flower of life, a Merkaba thing, or uh, some sort of uh, related thing like that. What's the significance of unicorns and sacred geometry and Kabbalah and things like that in your way of thinking? In my younger days, and that's a long time ago, someone gave me a book, uh, I think my mentor did, um, the title was uh, Fearful Symmetry. 
And the subtitle was, Is God a Geometer? And it's written by one of my favorite mathematicians, um, Ian Stewart, you know, who could send me in, uh, into a three-month-long depression just by writing one statement in there that could be imputed to be true for humans. And um, in, in, there, in, in there, he said that um, in, in the subtitle itself, is God a geometer? And that whole thing got me to thinking, like, for example, uh, when, when I'm looking at uh, things like, you know, people are looking at astrology and horoscopes all the time. I wonder why people do, right? And I wonder whether or not it's just a suggestion or anything like that. But what if they break into a symmetry of time? Like, for example, breaking into glass in a symmetry of time. There are many paths, but those paths are fixed. You know, you can go from one, one, one path or the other, and essentially you're just following that path, and there's a pattern. Um, you know, questions like this are curious to me. Um, is and, and then uh, I, I worked a lot on on um, on uh, chaos theory and um, in fact um, that's the the logo of health optimization medicine is a fluttering of the butterfly you know causing a hurricane with a flower of life at the center and for me it, it's it's like geometry provides us with a sc mental scaffolding for thinking about a lot of things that we even think are not related to say, a medical problem or a mathematical problem, etc. But it's always very clear to us, you know, uh, for example, duality in terms of enlightenment studies. Uh, when you manifest in this dimension, uh, that's the philosophy, you manifest in a, this dimension, there is a, a duality exists. There's light and exists without dark, good without evil, and, and so on and so forth. And it, man it actually finds its way into our philosophies, right? Uh, both Western and Eastern philosophies carry those. So for me... Uh, you know, looking at into into these various types of geometries, as uh, specifically, you know, uh, topology, uh, especially the the uh, uh, toroidal types of geometries, they're uh, highly interesting. So I I set aside time to study what the current physicists say about these structures, like, like for example, the isotropic vector matrices, like Nassim Haramein that says it collapses, you know, at the at the square faces and causing a jitterbugging, causing a toroidal structure, and therefore you have the quantum foam, and therefore matter is manifested. He makes a point, you know, and being able to take that with an open mind uh, is always good for you because you can then integrate it with other pieces of information. Now, I used to collect pewter unicorns until people... <laughs> Because um, you know, you know why, you know why, um, Dave? Because uni unicorns can only be seen by virgins. I'm kidding. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and and, and until such time, people gave up and they started giving me uh, elephants with tusks. I said, I don't collect elephants with tusks. I collect unicorns. And suddenly, people started giving me unicorns. Um, that are not pewter anymore. So there you are, you know, um, uh, unicorns up there. Uh, but they're imaginary creatures. And a lot of the mathematics that supports our science today, which is a language of science, is, is actually came from when you started putting the I superscript or subscript saying that the number is imaginary, that actually exploded uh, our exploration into all the other dimensions, which before were limited by the numbering system that we had. I remember back when I was studying uh, computer science, I, I talked with one of the advanced math professors and, and he was just ranting. He was so happy that he had this this new kind of math he, he discovered. 
And, and I looked at him and said, what do you do with it? He goes, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, what, what do you mean you have no idea? Why are you so excited about it? Like, like it's like, are you solving Sudoku here? And, and he said, no, like eventually we're going to figure something out because if the numbers all work out and this new system works, it means something. We just, we haven't figured it out yet. And I remember at the time as a, a young, arrogant, um, overweight, uh, kind of angry guy going like, like this guy's wasting his life. But to him, he was actually finding real beauty in that and probably contributing something that would be incredibly useful to the field of knowledge and just to expand our consciousness. And so yes. it, it's always fascinating to talk to really smart people doing advanced math. You, you, no, a physician doing advanced math. <laughs> and, yeah. um, um, and um, uh, you said something about beauty, uh, you know, formulas are beauty, uh, you know, equations are beautiful. I find them beautiful. I'm weird that way. Um, uh, you know, but the thing is, when I went to the lab for the first time, uh, I was asked two questions. I, I was asked, is consciousness computable? I said, yes. And he also asked, um, is beauty computable? I said, yes. If I worked on beauty, Dave, I would have been a multimillionaire many times over before this time. So, but I worked on, 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 uh, on consciousness. And the question that I had is, is uh, consciousness an emergent property of complex systems? And what's the answer? I belong to the emergent camp, right? Uh, because I was working on C. elegans and I was trying to remove, this was at the days of the internet when you could pose a question uh, I was brute forcing the Navier-Stokes equation, and you know how many solutions there are to that, right? And you you uh, post a question on the internet, and six Nobel laureates would respond yes. to you. Yeah, that was the those are the days of the internet that I missed. That, that was that was before <laughs> AOL plugged into the internet. At, at, at yeah. that day, the internet died. All right, I, I hear you. <laughs> yes, and and so it's um and. and when when I was uh, looking at that, I said, "Well, now let me remove the circuits, uh, the circuits that says now I feed, now I mate, now I move." You know, is there a circuit that that says now I will do this? And I found out that when I took out all the circuits after mo modeling it, there was no circuit left. So it's by putting it together that uh, you could actually find the emergence of this uh, uh, new systems, like one plus one equals three kind of thing, rather than a one plus one equals two. And it, it mirrors um, exactly what, um, what Daniel Dennett said. You know, he wrote Brainstorm. He was the one who um, wrote Consciousness Explained, which was criticized as, hey, you know, that's Consciousness Explained away. But he was the one who <laughs> po <laughs> he posed the question, if I cut off Ted's head and put it on Dave's and cut off Dave's head and put it on, on Ted, who is Dave and who is Ted, right? These are the kinds of questions that he was asking. And, and so I was looking at those, um, uh, those kinds of uh, problems. You know, looking at the internet now, I, I gave a I gave a speech sometime in the early '90s. I said, you know, the the main problem with highly networked systems is instability due to uh, noise, and uh, and I even gave an example which is prescient of what's happening now. I said, if I fart in California, no one ever has to know about it in Washington D.C. because it's insignificant information. It, these are the kinds of disturbances that we're seeing now that makes the network unstable. But you could still, you could see that there's an uh, emergent consciousness of the internet as a whole. No one's regulating it. It's just arising from the complexity of the flow of information within it. I love it that you're not just an AI researcher and uh, like like meaningful tech and mathematician guy, but you're also a, a physician. And 
the reason, or one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is um, I have a theory and I want to run it past you. And I, I wrote Headstrong and, and dug really deep into mitochondrial biology and, and how mitochondria make decisions. And I also read a book that that honestly, I, I, I say I read it. I can't say I digested all the equations. Uh, they were, they're over my pay grade. Uh, but Stephen Wolfram's book called A New Kind of Math. Yes. Um, it's, 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 still in, it's still in my uh, nightstand until now. <laughs> it's a great way to fall asleep if you want to fall yes. asleep. And, and, and so if you're listening to this, you probably missed this book. And, and this is the guy who created the software that most, uh, most researchers use to visualize uh, equations. Mathematica. Mathematica, exactly. And he kind of was a little bit crazy, I think you could say, uh, in, a, in a good way. Locked himself in his bedroom for like two years and wrote this book. And what he, he said was, you can take almost any form in nature and you can replicate it with a few simple rules repeated almost infinite numbers of times. And, and so he said, you know, here's the flower. It looks so complex, but it's really just these three things. You just have to do them an unfathomable number of times. And basically beauty or other forms emerge from what looks like dumb little rules. Yes. And I, I spent a lot of time looking at consciousness. I run a neuroscience facility that you know, trains people to have their brains work better. And what I, what I came up with was a theory. And I don't know anyone else on earth I could bounce this off of just so directly. So uh, I'm just going to ask you. So there's an operating system for a bacteria. They're, they're pretty stupid or a yeast, whatever, any single cell organism. And it goes like this. Uh, run away from kill or hide from scary things so you don't die now. Eat everything so you don't starve to death. And then reproduce at any cost so that the species doesn't die. Um, and then I look at, at our ego. <laughs> our ego is pretty much <laughs> run on those three things. Like all of us, everything we do we don't like. All the things we struggle against are, are coming from those three things. So I've come to the belief that our ego is an emergent property of mitochondrial biology, where the mitochondria are the smallest, fastest cells in our body. There's so many of them making micro decisions, uh, literally quadrillions of them making millions of decisions a second with an emergent behavior that looks like I'm going to run away from that scary thing uh, or I'm going to eat you know, eat the cookies, uh, you know, I'm going to have sex with everything that's not a cookie. Uh, and, and those sort of things are the ego urges, right? Is there, is that a, a meaningful, useful, uh, a framework or thought, or does that totally violate your connectome research? No, no, it, well, let me, let me put it this way. You touch on a fundamental question that I always ask scientifically, forgive me for verbizing a noun, but the question I ask is, um, what gets fractalized, all right? Whether it be a process, a structure, um, you know, what gets repeated over and over, all right? So that's the main question that I, I have always asked from the beginning, be it behavior, be it in, uh, when you're building something, be it when you're teaching, when you're learning, how the brain works, how energy systems, how the bioenergetics works, you know, uh, how, you know, I, I subscribe to the holobiont theory, you know, that we're, we're just uh, species, groups of species of organisms that are working uh, in, in synergy with each other. You, you touch on the one thing where I said, uh, Ian Stewart said that, uh, said something that uh, actually could get me depressed and it got me depressed for three months. He said that what if we are just in a grid, all of us, you know, you are alive and you're lit 
and we fo just followed simple rules. If the, the pixel on next to you, your pixel and your lit pixel, if the pixel to your left is lit, then you remain lit. If the pixel above you is lit, then suddenly dies, dies out. And the one to the left dies out, you die out. You know, and that was in the game of life. You're familiar with that, um, uh, that was done at Princeton, right? And mm -hmm. just by four simple rules, they're able to generate beautiful flowers and landscapes and gardens, etc. Uh, in fact, they use fractal programs now to generate, you know, um, alien landscapes uh, in movies. And and that actually sent me to depression because what he said was, because he calls each of these uh, squares cells, right? And he said, and then for every little thing like, oh, the mitochondria um, creates its own deuterium-depleted water. Oh, let's give yourself a Nocelle Award for that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, for me, it's it's a very useful construct to use at what to see what gets repeated over and over. In in uh, your reference earlier, you know Nassim Haramein's uh, point is that you know what's stable enough, uh, what is the vector equilibrium that's stable enough to produce a toroidal structure because tor toroids seem to be repeated all over and over in the universe in in terms of uh, geometry. Uh, in your in your uh, way of the mitochondria, you know each. It essentially, it's not just a mitochondria, each cell in the body, once mm. you remove its cooperative nature in there, will follow very distinct things. It will want to survive, uh, you know, it will want to survive, it will want to produce, it will want to defend itself. Those elements will just grow. Uh, but the big bad part of the ego is that not only does it, it reside in the default mode network of your mm. neural network called the brain, uh, which was just recently elucidated, right? Yes. It also it also fractalizes itself into our symbolic self. You know, I, I call I call the ego the center of narrative gravity. You know, uh, which is what Daniel Dennett calls the self, the center of narrative gravity. Stories we tell ourselves. You know, I am Ted. I was born here. You know, I am uh, thirty percent X genetically, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, that we carry, and then that that espouses all of our boundaries. That I won't do. This I will do. You know, and and then suddenly we find ourselves behaving exactly like the organisms that are inside us. So yeah. that's that's fractalized organismic behavior. Uh, you know, you, you just uh, you're you're just been able to probe through the smallest part. That's the living organism, right? And just expanded it to this big organism. That's. Uh, uh, synergistic operation of those smaller uh, organisms. So it, it shouldn't surprise us that that same behavior would come through, right? It's interesting. You talked about the internet becoming conscious, which is a, a big complex system. And then we look at the level of consciousness in our body, which is an incredibly large complex system, actually way more complex than the internet, just a single person's body. Uh, and then you end up like keep going down levels and levels uh, and you end up looking at cellular biology and subcellular biology, and, and you keep seeing this this idea of a fractal, like like the pattern repeats itself. Uh, and I, yes. it seems like it emerges from the very lowest levels of that, and it, you, you probe down to where those are. I don't know that we know the lowest level yet, but it's somewhere pretty small. Yes, um, in fact, that was a model that I used in health. They the organ systems, for example, they're all networked to each other, right? Yeah. And then you go to the specialized functions of the of the cells, and you see that all of those like hormones, for example, they're all networked to each other. You touch one node, everything else. Uh, yeah, I'm a network guy. I'm a connectionist guy, so yeah, yeah, I look at it in terms of that. And then um, we have to come to some level where there is some commonality 
in function, structure and function among all the cells in order to affect any significant change in the health of a person. You know, so it, now we come to the level of the metabolome, and that's why I chose the metabolome, right? But we, we could, the framework doesn't stop there. The health optimization medicine framework that I created, for example, doesn't stop there. Uh, you can use, for example, if, if, uh, if uh, you can test, the, the key is if illness medicine diagnosis and treats, you know, health optimization medicine detects and, and corrects imbalances. So there are no claims to the practice. So if we are able to detect and present it to the illness medicine community, look, we are now able to test, say, subtle energy, you know, then uh, reliably. And here are the various mechanisms by which you balance the subtle energy. Then suddenly you are looking at a different level of connectivity, right? And, and then, so when, when you look at that, you're, you're essentially just mo moving the level from one layer to the other, and each one is just a fractal of the other. You know, the, co the connectivity, the behavior, et cetera, they all remain the same. And I think much of the fight that's occurring, for example, the thing that we're always confused with is functional medicine. Functional medicine is still very much disease-oriented. They will do these tests, but they will do it in the context of treating your disease. And that's why, you know, we don't have any fights with illness medicine at all, because I said, we have no claims. Whatever effects that you get from balancing your metabolome is a beneficial side effect. Um, uh, but the, 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 the key here is that you, you descend, you know, uh, you, you shift your perspective from one to the other. If the perspective descends from the metabolome to quantum physics and, you know, the world is crazy enough to understand quantum physics, and we're able to test it, right? Um, just a few years ago, the physicists were poo-pooing the idea that um, tunneling, uh, you know, tunneling uh, doesn't occur in biological systems, and they found that it actually occurs in photosynthesis. So all of these things are getting upended very, very quickly. So what we need is a level of measure, I think, uh, to be able to measure these things and then affect, uh, as, as a, a, you know, I'm an applied mathematician, not a purist who delights in just equations for equations sake, but what does it translate you in terms of usefulness, in terms of raising the consciousness of everyone else in this planet for, you know, uh, to be kinder, more cooperative, uh, less wars. You know, if, if you change that, perhaps then, then the, if you change the vibration of that, perhaps then, you know, the entire network changes also in its vibratory rate, right? I could not agree more with that statement. And, and for, for you, if you're listening to this, um, that, that's a profound statement. But what it, what it implies and, and what I've certainly found in, in my own you know, explorations of consciousness in Tibet and, and all the other things I've done, uh, as well as just direct experience either with ayahuasca or neurofeedback and whatever, um, when you change how, how you interact with the world, it has a, a very meaningful impact on all the people around you. And one of the reasons I, I even started Bulletproof, like, look, of those three mitochondrial behaviors, the, the, the hunger one, it's hard to be nice to people when you're hungry all the time. And if you eat stuff that makes you hungry when you're done eating it, you act like a jerk. And certainly my whole experience as an obese person, I think hypoglypigy might have been like the perfect uh, description for the way I was most of the time. So, yeah, I, I was a total jerk. But it wasn't that I chose to be a total jerk. It was that it was happening and it didn't feel like I had control. And like when I'm well fed, I'm nicer. And that seems like the lowest hanging fruit you know, to fix our, our broken food supply. 
which can increase everyone's consciousness. And that lets us have more energy to work on that, not being afraid of things that aren't actually dangerous. And uh, maybe we can make the world a better place just by being a little bit nicer to the people around us. And I'm, I'm hopeful on that. In fact, that's my thesis. Interesting that you said that because um, my BFF here in Washington, D.C. is the founder of, uh, of uh, Socially Responsible Investing. He started it in 1983. It's now called Impact Investing. So he was the, he's the one who taught me everything I know about finance. That's why I have this kind of social consciousness, right? Um, and um, he gave a speech in Davos uh, at the economic summit. And, and he starts with me and my advice to him. I, I, he said, wow. you know, I have a, he said, I have a friend, he said, who says, when you wake up cranky in the morning, don't blame the markets first, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because of the ticker tape that you saw. He said, ask yourself, am I constipated? Have I pooped yet? Am I hungry? <laughs> <laughs> am I thirsty? You know, before blaming someone else for being irritable, you know, ask yourself first these questions. You know, are, are there any of these biological needs that have to be fulfilled first before blaming someone else for your irritability? And that's what I mean. You know, it starts with you and, and then uh, your connections actually change as you change uh, in terms of your your presentation, you know, your energetic presentation. So, so if you want to change the world, change yourself. Yes. Um, what is the saying? Um, when 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 I was, uh, you know, when, when I was young, I wanted to change the world. And when I was wise, I wanted to change myself. Something like that. Uh, th there you go. That, that's a little biohacking thing. You know, ch take control of your <laughs> biology. You might like what happens. Now, you have this, this really cool background where you came from you know, one field uh, and you went into another field. And I mean, do you, do you piss off doctors? I mean, because you're, you're a real medical professional, but you don't think like a typical doctor, not even, not even a little bit, although you have the knowledge base. You, you think like a network guy who does medicine. Um, I mean, do you, do you get a lot of pushback from some of, of Western medicine? Oh, uh, I, when I started, the, the I did a pioneering effort in Asia, uh, in the Philippines. I'm there 30 days every quarter. And um, it, it, there was an initial uh, pushback in, in several areas, uh, but not where you expect them to be. Number one is that most doctors just skated by biochemistry and just okay. barely passed it, right? And so they never want to visit biochemistry ever again. And so when I open my mouth, they shut up because, because then I know my pathways, et cetera. But I get calls, something like this, Dave. Um, Dr. Chikoso, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Uh, how is your vitamin, mineral, hormone, and supplement therapy going to affect the, my drug therapy for my patient? And I said, uh, excuse me. My vitamins, minerals, and supplements have been seen by my patient evolutionarily throughout history, but your drug has never been seen by my patient in history. So you tell me how your drug therapy is going to affect the levels of the vitamins, minerals, and supplements for my patient. <laughs> uh, that, that, has to, that has to make a lot of friends from, from Big Pharma, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and sometimes I get calls, you know, when I'm here in the United States or in Europe, uh, I get calls saying, they go, you know, 
this is the, because my patients think that their doctors know how to read the, met, the metabolomic results, right? So they bring their metabolomic results over to their uh, illness medicine doctors and they go, this is, this is a biochemistry. I said, look, I don't purport to know how to read your EKG or your EEG, even if I know how to. Uh, I said, so don't purport to know how to read my metabolomic network. And I said, it's a separate specialty and you should respect it that way. So the pushback um, has, has uh, always been uh, that way uh, in, in a sense that it's a different point of view, but the point of view makes sense to them. It makes sense. Like, like no, no sane doctor is going to read a, a, an x-ray film. They're going to go to a radiologist and say, you yes. need to look at this or yes. and, uh, someone who does uh, sonograms. Like, like they, they have a different vision for that. Right, and, and what you're saying is basically that metabolomics is a is a new specialty, and someone who looks at that is going to see a pattern that's different than a than a physician who's a, a generalist. Let's say yes, yes, because you, you know all of these things that you mentioned earlier: epigenetics, my, mitochondria, bioenergetics, the uh, gut immune system, the gut microbiota, exposomics, you know, um, chronobiology, and evolutionary medicine. All of these throw off metabolites, and you should be able to find them in their network. Right, you should be able to do that. So, oh, I, you mentioned something. Um, you did ayahuasca, right? Yep, down is, in Peru. Is it, oh, okay. I, since I'm also trained in pharmacology and toxicology, aside from interventional <laughs> neuro... <laughs> awesome. You have like the coolest background ever. All right. Aside from uh, interventional neuroradiology, I used to say, I'm trained in pharmacology, toxicology. I know my poisons. I, I'm trained in interventional neuroradiology. I poke brains for a living. And I am trained in medical informatics, so I know how to compute for poisons to introduce to your brain when I poke them. So <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> the key to all of these things is that having done pharmacology, I said, when I look at the lore of ayahuasca, uh, I, you know, I, I suspect that it's like LSD. It shuts down the default mode network, yeah. you know, allows your alternate networks to go, go, go on uh, a similar effect uh, like so. I said, well, you know, I don't like I don't like to suffer. I don't, don't do vomiting. Uh, I don't do I don't do nausea. If you want to suffer and vomit, go ahead. But someone like me should be able to figure out a way to gently deliver it. So uh, I was able to to develop a system called PharmaWaska. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and do tell me. Where... I'm sure everyone listening wants to know about this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it uses um, a reversible MAO instead of Banisteriopsis caapi, which yeah. is their the, uh, irreversible MAO. It uses uh, a drug, uh, uh, a reversible MAO. De uh, so you don't need. Uh, no, uh, moclobemide. Okay. Yeah. And um, it, it actually, it's an underprescribed antidepressant. I figured out, you know, what the what a nice first dose is to have, and and how to the protocol, how to inhibit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, uh, I started. I won't tell where I did this because. Um, <laughs> yeah, I understand. Uh, Two hundred miles but, offshore. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I did it. Um, I, I did the pharmacosca uh, consistently, like um, uh, every two months. You know, wow. uh, for when when I was fifty for about three years. And that's that's why I became crazier than ever. Um, I'm <laughs> no. Wow. It's it's um it's a uh, there there are things that humble you, you know, in 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 a lot of uh, what you do. 
you, you know, an IQ really means nothing if you don't maintain yeah. any curiosity towards, towards anything. And the one thing that humbles you a lot in science, mathematics, physics, and all of these areas that I have ever seen is that there are certain things that are that you cannot know. You know, you cannot know death, for example. There are certain things that are knowable. And what science does is there is a wall. And what we try to do is we try to push that wall just a little bit more and more to reveal what's more in there. But still, there's a large part in there that's unknowable. And, right. you know, we know just know a little bit at a time and our knowledge is often incomplete. And that that humbles you a lot, you know. So that's that's how I, I uh, take a look at these things and looking at all these um, substances that can allow us. Uh, who was it who said that the psychedelics are to the mind as the telescope is to astronomy and the microscope is to biology? Sounds something like, like that. Terence McKenna, maybe hard to. So, yes, yeah, something like that. And I think it's we're beginning to just do that now, in in terms of um, exploring our minds. You've talked about the default mode network. Uh, yes. a couple times. And I, I actually developed some software a while back called Neurominer that just what no one's heard of. But um, what it does is it, is it trains you to be to remember what's happening in your default mode network. And I'm going to define that for people. And then I want you to tell me where my definition is wrong, because you actually know way more about it than I do. But um, this is part part of my learning process, right? So there, the way I think about this is that there's something that happens in your mind when you're not doing something. And we used to believe that that you're you're either in default mode or you're in an active mode. And then what scientists at Oxford figured out about ten years ago is that oh, you're always some percentage in default mode and some percentage in in active mode. And I believe anyway that that interesting stuff happens in default mode, and that if you can remember that, like daydreams and intuition and things like that, if you can remember a little bit more of that, there's probably some value in that, but that most of the time, because it's what happens when we're not doing something, we're not aware of it. So it's it's the part of you that's out of your consciousness. Good definition, bad definition. What's the uh, what? What's your take on that? What's missing is looking at it from. I, I hate looking at layers, but looking at it from a layered network point of view. Um, uh, I, I think you could get more distinction if you because. When you look at the default mode network uh, as it is, it's actually majority of it is what I call the bioevolutionary information generators and filters. Mm -hmm. And that's a term that I, co I coined when I was 30 years old. I never I was writing my second book. And um, when I told the publisher that that my audience was doctors and she said doctors don't read and I promptly shelved, shelved the book. Right. Ah. But um, <laughs> Um, the, I, I call them the bioevolutionary information generators and filters, and this is part of the default mode network. It's what keeps you surviving. It what it what makes you you know look for food, look for you know protect yourself, and, and so on. And they're always there. There's a vigilance that stays over, and that uh, that actually bleeds through to the higher symbolic network that's in there. That's still part of the default mode network. How you represent yourself symbolically. In that network, so for me, those are the sociocultural information generators and filters, right? So you have the bioevolutionary information generators and filters here that's part of the default mode network, the sociocultural information generators and filters here, and then your active network out there. So at any one time, you know, all of those are active, or at least a portion of those are active, 
because it determines a lot of. Remember, uh, it, it can be exemplified by a very simple behavior. If you are going sh grocery shopping and you're hungry, you tend to buy a lot more food, right? Right. Uh, but if you uh, uh, shop sated, then you are actually going to just buy what's what's on your list. So these are these are things that are subconscious, but they actually define a lot of you know how we perceive the world. And uh, in terms of the DMN, that's how I look at DMN uh, per se. So for for people listening, if you wanted to have more control of or more awareness of behaviors that emerge from the default mode network, like what would you do? There's always one thing that I uh, ask people, you know, what's worth doing in one's lifetime? And uh, one of them is what's worth doing in one's lifetime for oneself, right? And for me, it's the development of a, what I call a meta self. I thought I coined the term, but someone actually did. Uh, you, you, you see immediately, like, uh, you know, whether or not emotions, emotions usually that arise to the surface, like, you know, envy or, oh, you're, you're coveting something or this. And as they arise and give yourself three seconds of taking a look at what emotions there are and whether or not they serve you. Right. So this can be brought about by meditation. I know you're big on gratitude meditation, but for me, um, it's uh, I'm big on what I call the Hotu meditation, which is my meditation in the morning, the history of the universe meditation. So <laughs> I imagine the <laughs> I imagine the Big Bang. You know, I, I imagine you know this entire symmetrical universe, and then the Big Bang, and then you know the galaxies form, and then you know all the the whole the universe forms. You know, and and then uh, out comes the Earth, and then uh, there's evolution, and then a, a second before midnight, man comes out. And then here's me, and what problems do I have? And suddenly you have this big perspective, and you're looking at yourself from the outside as a you know a product of of all of this, and you're better positioned to take a look at yourself and what's going on in the inside. So you know uh, that's a that's a technique that I use. Uh, just imagine how small you are, and um, when you when you imagine that, then things going inside you will not impact your ego as much when you think of it that way. That is a, that's a really, a really powerful meditation. And uh, you mentioned pharmawaska and ayahuasca, and I've actually had more uh, profound visionary experiences from doing just really intense neurofeedback, like you know, dissolving into the universe and you know things that, that probably many spiritual traditions would call uh, past lives. I, you, know, you could describe things yeah. like that as you know, entirely made up or whatever you want to call them, but just very, very powerful visions, uh, more so than from the pharma side of things, just from you know, visualization and, and just from sort of like, I, I believe probably turning down the default mode network, uh, mm. using feedback to do it. And, and so if, for a lot of people, it's like, well, I, you know, I, I did breathing in my yoga class or you know, I, I did a 10 minute audio course or something like that. But there, there can be some really profound things that happen. And usually it involves a, a teacher, like teaching how to do it. Did you get taught that that thing or did you come up with it yourself? Like, like where, where, did, where did that emerge from? A lot of it emerged from my um, uh, research and uh, my curiosity about things. And of course, a, uh, a study uh, of uh, a lot of the traditions worldwide on energy and energy healing. I'm an informal student. I always am uh, in, uh, very interested in uh, shamanic healing uh, all over the world. These, these kinds of things, they sort of like uh, emerge uh, almost almost organically from all, all of these studies because you're able to piece together, you know, all of these uh, different um, different parts of it. 
And interesting what you said about you know, neurofeedback providing the same thing. There's actually a very simple technique now that you that I remember it that, that the listeners can use. You know, when you go close your eyes and meditate, you're told to focus on your breathing, right? Mm-hmm. And and we have so we are so fucked up. We, we have so protocolized <laughs> meditation, yeah. you know, saying, oh, it's for reduction of blood pressure and reduction of stress and la 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 la. No. Um uh, let's go back to the original purpose of meditation as it's done in the in, in the traditions of the East, right? Um it's for to, to allow the awareness to come in. So just when you close your eyes, even just for a couple of minutes and focus on your breath, just ask yourself one question over and over. Who is, who is it who breathes you? You know, instead of who is it that's breathing, ask who it is, who is it that breathes you? Who is it that beats your heart? You know, and suddenly the ego goes away. Because, um, you know, uh, those are totally automatic systems in a scientific point of view. But it's that awareness that actually is beating your heart, that's breathing you and and so on. So if you just keep on asking that question, who is it that breathes you over and over, you will come into that awareness, that sense that, you know, this is a meat avatar that you're occupying, uh, that that you have, that you take care of, you know, uh, that that you have fun with or that you scream at your kids with. Do you know how, how unusual it is to be interviewing an expert in metabolomics asking the question of who is it who's breathing you? So that, thanks for just having a, a brain willing to be constantly curious. And, and you bring up something that, that I've noticed. Many of my, my very favorite uh, healers, uh, particularly physicians, uh, kind of secretly have uh, relatively advanced meditation practices, but they, they oftentimes don't necessarily tell patients or colleagues that, oh yeah, like I, I do this on a regular basis and you know may, maybe that's part of why I'm better clinically than someone who doesn't do this. Um, not that they have that kind of an ego to say I'm better than others, but just wh- why am I successful with patients? It's, I don't know, sometimes I just know something and I'm going to treat it because I just know and it's because of that practice. Do you think that, that, that that's actually prevalent in, in top physicians and top inventors and, and people in their fields? I think so. Um, actually, I have two stories with that. Uh, I was lecturing on epigenetics once, you know, as throwing off metabolites that can be detected. And it was then only there that the physicians understood the connection uh, of exercise, meditation, stress reduction, et cetera, on the epigenome. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you could measure metabolites. And and they found once they found that link to the that, oh, it could be explained by epigenetics. Once they found that link they were able to bridge immediately the value of yoga, meditation, exercise, and so on and so forth, you know, without all the other uh, other bigger things in the macro scale, but on a cellular level, they, they were able to see. Then they understood, said, oh my God, this is the first time I'm understanding the connection between meditation and health, right? Uh, but on the other hand, um, I'm training people in, uh, I'm training doctors and practitioners in health optimization medicine, uh, you know, I have trained them in the Philippines. I'm training currently uh, in, in Canada and here in the United States. And and um, uh, a couple of them were very bright. Uh, you know, one of them in the car said to me, he said, Dr. Ted, I think I know why your patients are getting well. I said, it's not with the hormones and nutrients and anything that you give them. It's because you have a gratitude meditation that you practice every morning. I yeah. actually, in, in the morning... I, uh, I uh, have a gratitude meditation. All my patients, uh, whether or not I hate them or not, 
uh, clinically. <laughs> I, I flash them in my mind. <laughs> I, 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 I flash in my mind. They, they float in my mind. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for their great health, you know, or I'm grateful for their healing. And I, I pass them through. He said, so Dr. Ted, you're simply energizing them. <laughs> you know, it's this, this uh, hormones and nutrition gives are simply a prop. So there's that one, one part that they're actually teasing me about. Um, but I said, hey, hey, you know, these things that you give, they, are, there's, they induce certain vibratory states in the patient that change their well-being. Those molecules, those vitamins, those minerals, the supplements, those hormones, they do change the vibratory state of, of being. You're doing it this way in terms of the body or your your uh impinging on the body itself but you know so uh, you know as well as i do dave but that there are many energy healers around the world that will do work on the energy first and then the illness goes away so you know that's the other way of doing it and, and it's not necessarily an either or and and what what i've just come to to learn over a couple of decades of paying attention to this is that the people who are most effective as healers do both Right. And, yeah. and there, there are some profound energy healers who seem to be able to, you know, touch someone and they get out of a wheelchair. I haven't experienced that myself, but I've, I, I've, seen, I've even known people who have had that kind of experience where I'm not going to deny it. I'll just say it's highly unusual. And, yes. and there are people who do, you know, straight up chemo and, you know, remain angry at the world and they get healed and everything's fine. But it seems like if we're going to play the odds, you probably want to just do everything that might work all at once <laughs> instead of just choosing one. Well, that's, a, that's, that's uh, what medicine is all about. Uh, medicine is neither a science or an art. Medicine is a trade, you know? <laughs> what, what, what we get paid for our services. It's first and foremost a trade. So it's pragmatic and eclectic. Whatever works for the patient, we use for the patient. I think that's a confusion about medicine right now. Most people think that it's, it's a science, and art, blah, blah, blah. No, it's a trade. It's very pragmatic. It will take from as many disciplines as it can in order to heal the patient. And, and, and that's always been my, my point of view. However, if you want to make a change in terms of removing illness from the equation and focusing on health, uh, I, I, as I like to say, you know, if the World Trade Center was never bombed, you know, you will never see the great lengths that was done in order to prevent the bombing. And that's what we're trying to do in health optimization medicine. The bombing is the disease. You know, all the things that you do to prevent that is, uh, you know, your, your preventive medicine, your health optimization, your maintenance of your engine, your optimization of, of that engine. And in order to get it accepted by the illness group, you know, one, I make no claims, uh, which I'm very strict about. Uh, and number two, it follows the same framework as they do, diagnose and treat, you know, detect and correct. So it's the same model. You present a level of measurement. And an example of this I could give is my mother. I mean, she passed away last year, but at 86, I took over her care. She was uh, then two years uh, wheelchair bound. When in six months, you know, with hormone uh, and nutrient uh, balancing, she was able to walk with a cane around her garden. So that's the kind of, you know, it's not the I heal you now and you start walking out of your wheelchair, but something that's more quote unquote medically or scientifically acceptable in that regard, where after six months, she's able to pull herself up. And, and then, you know, um, she was 86. At 87, she was able to get herself a 77-year-old boyfriend. Hey, you know, that, that's a miracle in itself. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but that's, that's what I'm saying, is that if we could, uh, if you'd cast it in the framework where it could be more acceptable, uh, where it could be used, 
you know, and incorporated into illness medicine practice as part of their foundational practice, then that would be great. But if they don't like it, they could just refer the patients to us. We know how to do it. <laughs> Spoken like a classical disruptor. <laughs> now, if, if someone, whether they're a medical practitioner listening or uh, uh, someone who's just interested in learning more, how would you go about measuring your metabolome? Like, like what are the tests that you look at to help understand what's going on in a patient? Uh, currently, the tests that I use are uh, made by Genova. You know, they have uh, the Nutrival, which is from urine, and they test your levels of vitamins, minerals, and so on. You could get the plasma amino acid levels also. Uh, and then I also take um, the GIFX, which is stool, to see whether or not you have any leaky gut, uh, and then to see the, the profile of your gut bacteria and what metabolites they're actually throwing inside your body. Uh, your levels of short-chain fatty acids and, and, and so on. Uh, and then I also take um, uh, the gut sensitivity uh, testing and I, uh, you know, to see what foods can be removed in order to decrease your molecular inflammation. And I know there are a lot of, of uh, pros and cons about doing this, but you know, Dave, it's the best that we have right now and it works. So why not use it? Let's be pragmatic about it. You know, let's not fight about the tests. If they work, you know, if there, there's an improvement in the future, sure, uh, the great improvement. So you, I take a look at those levels and then, um, you know, uh, you, uh, if there's a borderline toxicity, you take it out. If there's a, a border, uh, if there's a, a subtle toxicity, take it out. Borderline deficiency, you put it in. And remember, uh, I'm looking at values, the, the normal quote unquote values are not relevant to us. We use optimal values. Optimal values are those found at age 21 to 30. And I use 30 because at 30, testosterone levels in men drop. And that's what, that's what yeah. I use as my, my gauge, uh, 21 to 30. Um, uh, but, but it was interesting, Dave, um, uh, last, uh, uh, two or three years ago, there was a 60,000 cohort uh, uh, epidemiological study that was presented in Europe where they found out that even men uh, aged 21 to 30 were experiencing erectile dysfunction from endocrine disruptor chemicals. You know, the, the chemicals found in the environment that disturbs their uh, endocrine systems or hormone systems causing a drop in testosterone. So uh, th that was a very uh, interesting study. Then, uh, then after that, you know, after comparing, then you try to move the entire network. And here's my network background. I tried to move the entire network of hormones and nutrients over to when you were 21 to 30. Now that's the science of it. You cannot just move one because when you touch one, the rest of the network will move, right? And I call that network-wide range shifting. You know, you shift the entire network. Um, the, the, the mistake that we made, even anti-aging medicine, for example, made uh, many years ago is that they gave hormones singly. You give estrogen unopposed, of course, you'll get breast cancer. You'll give you know, testosterone unopposed, you'll get all sorts of uh, side effects. You have to move the entire network because all of them balance out each other uh, in, inside the body. Uh, so you have to move the entire network. Now that's the science, but the art of it is if the patient already starts feeling well and, and says, I am good at this level, then you stop at that level temporarily until you remeasure. You know, uh, you, you, for the first year, I'd recommend that you get measured every three months, second year, every six months thereafter. And this is how you invest in yourself. You know, you're investing in your health uh, by, by doing this because no illness medicine doctor is going to do this for you. Very, very well said. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, 
hey, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what three pieces of advice would you have for them? Okay, Dave, I'm prepared for this question. <laughs> <laughs> I always am asked, so Dr. Ted, how do you live your life? And I say, I live my life like a video game. And the video game has three components, life, health, and time. Life, I only have one of them. So, you know, in your video game, you can have as many lives, but this is the only life we have. So I don't place myself at unnecessary risk. True, I'll go bungee jumping, I'll go skydiving, but I'll never, I'm never going to chase that bike who just cut me off the road because humans are uncertainly dangerous. So <laughs> <laughs> don't get killed by a human, got it? <laughs> so, um, in fact, there's a saying, you, you cannot get killed by ghosts, but you can get killed by a human. So uh, the, um, the, the second is health. You know, in Pac-Man, where you eat those cherries, etc., so you get stronger and healthier. So, um, you know, be healthy. Uh, you know, uh, do things that will make you healthy. You provide a lot of advice of, uh, of being healthy. And one of the things, the most difficult things that was asked of me is how does health optimization medicine make you spiritually healthy, right? And this was asked of me by a psychiatrist because spirituality is, is a component of healing. And I said, you know, that's really very simple, right? The DMT is the spirit molecule, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, uh, lack of spirituality is called the DMT deficiency syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Give DMT and the ball starts rolling. But anyway, not only your physical, emotional, and mental health, but also your spiritual health and your energetic health, and then time. And uh, I alluded to this earlier. How do you want to spend your time? You know, and there are two things that I ask myself: is what's worth doing in one's lifetime, and uh, as a person. And for me, that's the development of a meta self that observes your ego all the time, so you can you know when to engage and not to engage in particular situations. And that's a continuing practice. And the second is what's worth doing in the service of the planet Earth, other people, other creatures. You know, that's not just you. Uh, you know, you, you belong to an entire network of, uh, of uh, beings here on Earth. And we all just currently have one planet that we live in. And, and so what's worth doing in the service of that, of, of, of uh, other people, creatures and the planet? You know, so if you decide what kind of time you want to spend and spend it in high quality, then do that. Do that thing that you're, you love and you're passionate about. And, but in scientific parlance, Dave, um, I would like to translate that to something that's more very simple. Don't fuck with my time and I won't fuck with yours. So, <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I love that one. So life, health, and time. My, my life as a video game. Uh, I I love it, and it it's very pragmatic, and also leaves a lot of room for uh, for exploration in each of those fields, uh, and particularly the the not dying, it is really good. And I I talked a long time ago. One of the first hundred interviews was with a physician, and I I want to say it was, mm, I don't know. Actually, it wasn't even in the interview. It, it was before the interview, and we had this conversation about not dying, and and one of them was was drive a heavy car, like, like physics, like, like some other driver is going to do something bad. You want to have 
mass behind you when that happens because your odds of living longer just from that go up dramatically. And the other one was leave flying to professional pilots. Like, cause, cause, you know, if you're flying an airplane and you're not very good at it, like your odds of dying go up dramatically. So the whole not dying cause you don't, you know, get a do over, I think is, is underrated in what a lot of us choose to do with our lives. Well, I do fly, fly planes, but the, 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 the question, the flip side question to that is I'm always asked, but so Dr. Ted, how do you want to die? Before I said, I want to get assassinated because only important people get assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now I've changed that, Dave. I said, I want to die in the middle of an orgasm. That's the best way to go. You know, I, I, I've had both answers. And, and what I, where I am now with my, I'm going to live to 180 or more um, perspective is I'd like to die uh, at a time and by a method of my choosing. <laughs> Which includes <laughs> orgasm is just fine, uh, but I hope it's not a push button orgasm. Like oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully a, a, a long good one. I, I'm with you there. Uh, uh, Ted, th- thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Uh, people can find your work at healthoptimizationmedicine.org or biobalanceinstitute.com. Anywhere else they should go to learn more about your amazing body of of cool stuff. Yeah, if uh, they can just. Uh, you know, Google Dr. Ted Achacoso and at uh, YouTube, they would find all of my um, crazy stuff over there, other podcasts, lectures, and so on that I give, and uh, trying to convince illness medicine physicians to shift more to health rather than just focusing on disease, like, uh, you know, getting away from the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. Well, it's breaking. It just don't see it yet. So let's, let's, uh, prevent that uh, breaking. And that's uh, the theme of uh, much of my lectures out there, like molecular inflammation, uh, you know, mitochondria, microbiota, vitamin D, you know, all those sorts of things that doctors don't want to pay attention to. And that you pay attention to, Dave, to your credit, you're actually one of my inspirations for no way. Um, uh, this frame. Yes, for this framework, because if someone like you, uh, you are able to bring in the level of thinking of uh, the people, uh, who listen to you to this level, then they will be ready for this kind of management, right? So illness medicine is about disease management. Health optimization medicine is finally about health management. And that's what you want to do. Beautiful. Well, I, I am grateful for your your body of work. And I, I love I love the network perspective on medicine. I think it it's largely lacking because it takes it takes a good amount of time to learn to think in networks. And for me, I, I had to learn how to be a teacher. I, I taught at the University of California in the, the web and internet engineering program to learn just once you have that way of thinking, you can't really go back. And it, it, it tells you how to influence a complex system. And like you said, single molecules oftentimes aren't, aren't the one answer. You, you have to do more than one thing at a time. So th- thanks for your, your limitless curiosity and, and your work. And I think you're making a difference. Thank you, Dave. It's perspective always. You know, it's what any mentor and any uh, use broadcaster worth his salt can do is to shift perspective. That's what a good mentor does. That's what a good guru does. That's what a good healer does. And that's what a good person like you does. Oh, th- thank you. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, go watch one of uh, Ted's videos because they're really cool. Uh, head on over to Amazon, leave a review for Headstrong or leave a review for the show. Or just do something nice for another person today. That makes the world a better place a little bit more than you might think, at least if you believe that we're all in a big network, which we are. Have an awesome day. 
A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.